0: Hello everyone, welcome back to the Plains on the Prairie podcast. I'm Max and I'm Sam and today we are continuing our history talks on the um, basically the heavies of North Dakota. Um, last week's episode focused on the 319th and 321st wings that were at Grand Forks Air Force Base and today we're going to be talking about the 5th Bomb Wing and the 91st Missile Wing that are at Minot Air Force Base. Um, so yeah, we're just going to hop right into it. Uh, Sam, if you're ready, we can get her going.
1: Yeah, let's do it. And just a reminder to check out our first video or first, uh, excuse me, first podcast on, uh, the bomb wings from Grand Forks. Um, they don't need to be watched in order necessarily. You could just go ahead and check that out when you're done with this one.
0: Absolutely. All right. So we're going to get started here. Um, the fifth operations group, which is, what category the 5th Bomb Wing at Minot falls under, excuse me, traces its history back to the second group observation, which was stood up in August of 1919 at Luke Field in Hawaii. So it's one of the, I believe, one of the first 10 or 20 um, Army Air Force, well, Army Air Corps Squadron at the time that was stood up even before World War II. So just missed that. World War One mm-hmm. era, so really early in the war, which I know you are absolutely Oh, yeah, you know those of. yellow <laughs> winds. Yep.
1: Yep. No, it's reading back into this history is just interesting, like the these pre war bomber squadrons and bomber groups. It's just.
0: And yeah. it seemed like they transitioned from, you know, technology at that time was, you know, rapidly yeah. changing. You couldn't keep up. No, literally, actually. And I know a lot of those early, um, even though they were being used by the Americans, they were actually predominantly British bombers. Right.
1: Yeah. Transitioning of French and British was Mm -hmm. kind of the thing. And then um, companies like Keystone and Martin started building bombers in the 20s. And then, you know, getting into the big ones, Douglas, Boeing, and so on into the pre-World War II and into World War II.
0: Absolutely. And remember Keystone, because we're going to be talking about them a little (laughs) bit later. Um, but in 1921, the group was redesignated as the fifth group observation and started flying the De Havilland DH-4 biplane bombers, which, if my memory serves me, I believe DH-4s were the first aircraft to perform air-to-air refueling, um, yes. I believe, in 1923. Yes. Because- yes,
1: and they were called the Liberty ship in uh, World War One. They were uh, made with Liberty engines in the U.S., just cranked them out, uh, license-built, flew a lot of them. Uh, and uh, they're originally built by Aircar, Airco, excuse me, which turned into the de Havilland, designated the DH-4, and just a common site around Western Europe, especially.
0: Interesting. I did not know that. Cool. So in 1935, um, going back to what we were talking earlier about Keystone, um, in 1935, the 5th Bomb Group actually helped save the Hawaiian town of Hila when Keystone V 3 and B-4 bombers, um, I believe it was 10 of them, in formation draft. Twenty six hundred pound bombs around a volcano on Hawaii to divert the lava flows that are actually heading towards the town. Now, wow. I I wish I could I, I wish I had written down the name of the volcano, but um, I think it's one of the few times that the Americans have dropped bombs. I think it's the only time the Americans have dropped bombs on a volcano.
1: Yeah, well, if it works, right. I mean, and it did,
0: it, it actually did, which is pretty. Couldn't quick. see them
1: doing that again, but no, yeah, <laughs>
0: no. the, the weapons that they have nowadays, I think that would level the entire island. yes. <laughs> but yeah, so in March 1938, um, they are redesignated as the fifth bombardment group in December of 1939, they were re- redesignated as the fifth bombardment group medium, and then in November of 1940. They were redesignated for the final time as the fifth bombardment group heavy. And by uh, the attack on Pearl Harbor, um, they were equipped with early model B 17s. I think none of the ones that had the the tail bit. turrets. It yeah, this
1: Yep, the C's, I, I believe, is C's and maybe the D model.
0: Yeah, that so definitely makes sense. Yep. And then they also had B 18 Bolo bombers, which, you know, both of us are big fans of those like late 30s, mm-hmm. Sam more so I will say, but. Ever since, I I will say, I, I told him that we've had this conversation even off the air, Um, that since we've been, since I've gotten to know you, some of your, your love, appreciation of those inner war bombers has really up on me.
1: Yeah, and I, I've just always been into it. I don't know what it, I'll explain how it started really quick, was, I used to like the meatball star the best. Like I just didn't like any of the other ones as much. i just, the I'm biased towards the meatball. And then I just started researching into these airplanes. I was like, man, it's fascinating. Like the reason I'm really into the interwar period maybe why you're into the early jet age, it's kind of the same thing. It's just rapid development. You can really appreciate the growing complexity of each airplane coming from a rag wing biplane yeah. into all metal construction, even jet engines prior to, prior to World War II. It's just amazing in such a short 20 year period how Absolutely. so much. Yeah. Can grow.
0: That's the big thing is 20 years. That's, mm-hmm. you know, I'm 26. Mm-hmm. Like over the course of my lifetime, at least you know, we look at the United States air force, what we are flying today, not a lot of jets have entered service in my lifetime. Whereas back then you had a new jet seemed like every five years.
1: Right. Before. And we can argue like War who does definitely advance things it's, it's out of necessity right yeah so it's just imagine like if world war ii didn't happen not that it was a bad thing but just think of the development how the development shift would have been we probably would be a, a decade behind at yeah, least
0: at, so, at the very least yeah happened. um another thing to add on to i think what i like about those um interwar bombers is that there's not a lot of them left no no and I know. I we've talked about you know sometimes if I'm bored I'll go on to the National Museum of the United States Air Force website and look at their. I I, I don't think either of us have been to that museum yet. Not, I mean, nope. no. Nope. Yeah, uh, it's on our list. Hopefully, it's getting there. Day. Yeah. But I was going to say, you take a look at the Interwar Gallery, and it is like one it's of insane one for everything. Yeah. And how, the stories of how they sourced some of those aircraft, if they were you know license built mm-hmm. versions are sold to like the Guatemalan air force. I believe it because they do have the sole surviving B-18 there. And I do believe it was with either the Guatemalans or the Hondurans. I I can't remember which air force. I'm
1: trying had. to remember too. Yeah. And then
0: it was donated. Yeah. It was a goodwill gift. Just, you know, how cool is that, that.
1: To have, yeah. Just yeah. something that's, yeah. And then there's like, uh, well the B-18 was based off of the DC-3, um, very underpowered airplane. Um, and then the develop they got developed on the B twenty three Dragon. That's when you see a little bit more. Yeah, they were converted into executive transports.
0: And then that's those like, are the versions. Like, of that like
1: Case IH even had one. Really? Yeah, they're that's international awesome. harvester at the time. Yeah. I should say cases are local, but
0: very local. Right yeah, here, but
1: yeah, they uh, pretty cool. So yeah, it's
0: absolutely neat so, aircraft there. Um, as you know, you could imagine it for an air force unit stationed. On Hawaii in the early days of World War II, um, they were not unaffected by the Pearl Harbor attacks. And on that morning, um, the Fifth Bomb Wing suffered extremely high casualties. Um, I believe all but four of their B-17s were destroyed on the ground. They lost countless, you know, men, both pilots, ground crews, you know, mechanics, wiped out, yeah. completely wiped out um however that being said even after the attack the fifth bomb wing was the first um unit to send b-17s or any aircraft i should say other than the p-40s that went out and attacked them yeah um, but they were the first heavy unit i should say that went out in vain to search for the carrier group and unfortunately we know that they didn't have any luck but, right um after world war ii or after pearl harbor excuse me um they continued to fly missions um, throughout the pacific mostly in the philippines Um, from I believe bases in australia yes yeah northern australia um, uh, long-range reconnaissance Mm -hmm. anti-shipping roles Um, one thing i know again something that we talked about off the air was you aircraft that were used in one theater uh, no this was last
1: last last episode yes
0: and they mentioned that the b-17 was Kind of phased out more so in the Pacific, just because of high attrition loss. High
1: attrition, and then high altitude bombing was nowhere near as effective as a dive bombing, and like the SPDs, and they weren't they weren't used in the right numbers. Like mm-hmm. the v seventeen was extremely effective as at as a high number bomber, right? Hundreds of them over Western yeah, Europe. Huge. Force just, yeah, and it was kind of a, a lot of bombs. A few, for a good amount of misses right mm-hmm. if you have a low amount of bombs to a localized target it just wasn't as effective um, it, statistics yeah right? it's statistics they were effective i recently was reading sidebar here on the reading a book on guadalcanal and some of the b-17 miss- missions in there and they were relatively effective but they also tended to use um use the b-17s more in that reconnaissance role like yeah. you were saying is they're very effective platforms for that Absolutely. long range.
0: And what I also found was that um as the, you know, the war went on, they obviously sent the B-17s to Europe and mm-hmm. elsewhere, but the B-24s were selected more so because they had much greater range than the B-17s. Extremely, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, like you said, maybe not, I, I don't think that the Japanese had flak defenses not as heavy they they, they still had them we're not saying that they didn't but compared to like the germans that literally had flak towers right versus you know a japanese garrison of like maybe 28
1: everything was small numbers it wasn't hundreds of thousands of men fighting for sure but yeah it's the 24 is an interesting aircraft for the pacific theater as well they were used a lot in burma we talked about that last time i know but they're used a -A 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 lot in the cbi theater but um the b-24 is kind of an interesting airplane for the pacific um pilots were afraid to ditch them i i suppose you know that like the high wing mounted wing it the uh casualty rate on a ditching was extremely high
0: yeah the, I, I will go on to just personal preference um i have family that were with b-24 during mm-hmm. the war so i have a special spot in my heart oh, for yeah. them. but that being said I know that extremely uh, dangerous and yep.
1: well every airplane kind of has its yeah. own quirk and that's just one thing. I mean the B-24 served really well. I right. I got to fly on one once and it was just a cool experience. Okay. So I'm a little Keep I, I like both I've been on both, thankfully. I'm really thankful for those experiences, but the rides were equally cool. So.
0: <laughs> well, hopefully I can get you just I, I wouldn't even mind just seeing a B24 one day.
1: Yeah.
0: Hopefully someday soon. So after the war, like most uh, bomb wings, um, they were deactivated. Mm-hmm. However, um, the modern Fifth Bomb Wing was reestablished in July of nineteen forty-nine at Mountain Home mm-hmm. Air Force Base in Idaho, and they flew the strategic reconnaissance mission where they um, would actually fly along the borders of both the Soviet Union and China from bases in um, you know the Aleutian Islands mm-hmm. or you know mainland Alaska, and they would test to see how good the Soviet and Chinese, mostly the Soviet during this time, um, how good their response time was for either radar stations or scrambling intercept aircraft. And what they found was the fifth bombing was actually attributed to this. They found that that Bering Strait area between, I don't know if that's a Bering Strait or not, but that area right between Alaska and Russia yep. was almost completely undefended. And the United States early on um, figured, hey, if we're going to hit them, that's the route we're going to take, right? And that was, you know, completely found by the fifth bomb, and then at the time, strategic reconnaissance wing. Yeah, pretty cool. Um, and that continued well into the 1950s. It mm-hmm. wasn't until like the late 1950s that the Soviets finally put, you know, long distance, you know, radar incoming radar sites out there.
1: Really interesting. And they flew yeah. 17s initially, right? Yep. And then into WB50s the- after that. WB50s. Okay.
0: Even. Also, very rare in the yes. craft nowadays. And then after that, they were stationed at Travis Air Force Base in California, flying again, um, now reconnaissance B 36 Peacemakers, mm-hmm. and then um, just standard B 36s um, in their strategic bombing role. Um, selfless plug here for the uh, maybe not the best movie that, um, oh, what's his name? Why am I forgetting his name? Legend. It's uh, the aircraft that Thunderbird was owned by. He, he oh. himself? Yeah. Uh, oh, wow. You're blanking Please up. don't tell us for are getting. I we didn't bring this know. up. Yeah. It's <laughs> right. Um But uh, yeah, you know, it's a good, from Strategic Air Command, basically. That's an mm-hmm. excellent movie if you ever want to see B-36s fly in color with, I think, almost original sound. Right. It is great. Yeah. Just maybe skip the dialogue. Because it's an, kind of cheesy. <laughs> um, so, and then uh, they were eventually uh, moved to Minot in 1963, where they became, um, I believe, one of the first, if not the first, B 52 H, G or H units. Um, I believe it was G because the H's would sort have of came after the yes. G's. And yep. would have been early. Um, that being said, the original bomb squadron at Minot before the 5th Bomb Wing was the 720th Bomb Squadron, also flying B 52s. And that was deactivated in 1963 to make room for the fifth bomb wing since the air force wanted to have a unit that had more right. history and
1: and they were going away from the dispersal idea as well right currently. at that time, so. yep,
0: absolutely uh so that basically wraps up the fifth bombing i know we uh, also can't talk about the fifth bombing I, I jumped ahead a bit there uh, without talking about a very special b-52 named ghost rider. ghost rider yeah so sam if you want to talk a little bit about that aircraft
1: All right, so Ghost Rider is a B 52H, uh, serial number 61 007. I'm sounding like you.
0: Good, getting there.
1: Uh, So, this was the first B 52 to actually be regenerated from long term storage into flying condition. This was started in uh, 2015, or it actually started earlier and then uh, first flew in 2015 after a few test flights is actually brought to Minot in September, 2016, and still as of this day serving with the squadron. Awesome. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. Um, and it just show, goes to show like what, yeah, yeah. You
0: know, what, what they're capable of, and Mark, I know a lot of people assume that to be, you know, where all of our aircraft Go are ahead. cut out, destroyed, yeah. but, you know, they do a phenomenal job, and mm-hmm. Ghost Rider is an excellent testament to that. If I remember correctly, wasn't there a B-52 crash, non-fatal, in the Pacific? I think either on Guam I think it was at Guam where a B-52 was burned up and they needed the replacement because under the START treaty, they're allowed to have X amount of strategic bombers, missiles, and bringing Ghost Rider back brought that number back up to what it should be. Right. Pretty interesting stuff.
1: It is. yeah. It just goes to show you the longevity of these airframes. I mean, the first flight was in the 50s, and they planned to have them in service for another 15 or 20 more years yeah. at least. It's, and uh, yeah.
0: when, when people say like, oh, it's your, you know, your grandfather's plane, it literally is. There's is, a chance yeah. that, and even you think about it, 15, 20 years from now, there's a chance that you know someone's great grandfather was the pilot of it when it was delivered from the Boeing factory mm-hmm. to mine. It's
1: a generational plane. It I mean, is. another thing kind of interesting is just longevity now versus we're not seeing that rapid change anymore it's really interesting i mean we can safely say there is change but it's not pre-world war ii or early jet age yeah. we're not seeing you know two years of one type of aircraft anymore it's 20 30 40 years
0: yeah. and now we have the what the b21 raider coming in yep, coming next out decade or so and then who knows what they're already working on both tom cruise that. showed us already yeah. so. <laughs> thanks tom <laughs> we'd love to have you as a guest on the podcast yes
1: yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so that
0: kind of wraps up so the fifth boundary. Fifth, Obviously, yep. there's so much more. Exactly.
1: Dives, there's yeah, deep dives for not sure. In
0: short, you know, amount of time that we have. Um, now we'll move on to the 91st missile wing. Um, we'll come clean. We honestly just really didn't have enough time to research in full, you know, the complete history of the 91st missile wing. Mm. Um, I do know that they were one of the first to receive um Minuteman 2s, I believe at Minot not. Um, not quite as new as the uh, 321st was at right. Grand Forks, but you know, still you know, very distinguished history. And speaking of that, um, the 91st was originally established during the Second World War as the 91st Bombardment Group Heavy. And some World War II trivia for you guys: um, both of the B-17s that were and that are currently on display at the National Museum of the United States Air Force in Dayton, Ohio, which we both want to go to eventually yes um are part of the 91st bombardment group during the second world war for your history buffs that would be the first one that was on display shushu baby for once i actually don't have a serial number pulled up which <laughs> is very disappointing um and shushu baby was a part of the 401st bomb squadron of the 91st bombardment group and then the other one probably the probably the most famous b-17 of all time let's just be honest here um, would be Memphis Bell. again. Mm-hmm. Somehow I don't have the serial <laughs> Please don't kill me. Um, and that would be part of the 324th Bombardment Squadron of the 91st Bombardment Group. So pretty cool that. Really cool. Yeah. That you know. And I I should also mention on top of that, the 91st Bombardment Group was the group of the United States Army Air Force that suffered the highest casualties mm-hmm. during the Second World War out of any bomb squad or any bomb group, both in the Mediterranean, Europe as proper, and then the Pacific. Right. So, um, I think it's fitting that for a unit that took such high casualties that both of the B-17s that have been represented at, at the museum...
1: Exactly. Uh, like, it's a good reflection on the sacrifice, for absolutely
0: sure. Absolutely. Couldn't have said it better myself. Yeah,
1: yeah so that about wraps up our North Dakota Bomber Series. Yeah,
0: I know. It, it went by pretty fast. Yeah. Maybe, who knows? We'll... Uh, we could cover uh, Maelstrom, yeah we can expand we can go glasgow yeah kind of, i i would like to cover some of those closed ones guys. yeah yeah that's, that's
1: getting into your niche there yeah <laughs> Yeah. so we thank you for tuning in here um a couple updates uh, max will be at air expo this weekend it's yep. pretty pumped Please for that
0: swing by and say hi i'll be there uh like i said yesterday i'll be there saturday and sunday Weather permitting, mm-hmm. Um, probably. If you want to say hi, let's plan for Sunday. I'll be a little busy on Saturday with family and friends that I'm seeing there. But Hey, if you're there, I'm bringing stickers. I won't say no to giving you one or two or. Five. Sure.
1: Yeah, so, we're trying to get okay. rid of them. We're not selling them anymore, I guess, yeah. at this point. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then I'll hopefully be in, be in Oshkosh. Still tentatively planning that. So. um, Yeah. So the this episode will be released on Monday. The uh 24th oh wait or 2020
0: 20 so f- premiere after air expo 11. after yeah oh. sorry
1: guys well <laughs> hopefully max has been to air expo and hopefully yeah, i'm hopefully i'm chilling in air wisconsin air right now yeah, yeah. So, so this yeah so um and then if you guys have any option or you know ideas for a podcast topic that we geez, can yes. touch base on for 10 to 20 minutes just let us know and we'll yeah. and if uh You guys like these short formats, uh, let us know, and uh, we'll catch you on the next one.
0: Cool. All right. Thanks, guys.
1: Thanks, guys.